This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And we must apologize because we have, I think, Idol's wooden mics rehearsals. Yeah, there's some sort next of weird jazz concert or something happening. So we have a studio which overlooks another studio. Um, and in some rocket science idea, they decided to put glass windows overlooking this other studio, which are not soundproof. So the uh, noise in the background, we apologize, but um, just play along. Uh, this is not a professional podcast, as you are aware. Ramon has repeated this on several occasions. This is the most professionalist podcast ever because we don't have a structure. There's no, there's, 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 we don't. There's no on, plan whatsoever. No stupid voices. Yeah. So it is, it gives, you know, life some texture. But nevertheless, um, Jonathan Witt, just this morning, I found out that Eminem basically guaranteed Trump 2020 Another yes, he's, four he's, years. Eminem's dropped a Trump advert. Um, his, 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 his endorsement, in fact, for Trump 2020. Right. And here's the thing. I, I think Eminem's a fantastic, like, I really do love Eminem. Yeah. I enjoy Eminem's music but as this well. This is the worst song I've heard. It's not even in a years. song. It's just like, it's like him trying to freestyle, but it's like, it's like that first scene from Eight Mile, but worse. It's, it's horrific. Um, and, and Eminem could probably do a really good Donald Trump takedown. I think he, he's got the talent to do that, but Absolutely. this is just pathetic. Um, and then of course the, uh, usual candidates coming out of the woodwork going, I never used to like Eminem, but now I love him. No, when he used to bash the gays and the women and, and the black people, I hated him, but now he's bashing Trump. He's my nigger or something. Ramon said it. With an there, A. Yeah. With an A, so it doesn't count. <laughs> there you go. That's all you need to just cut out and then that's it. That's, there's your editing done for you. Um, and uh, while, while we're talking about dodgy stuff happening, Harvey Weinstein um, has pretty much molested all of Hollywood. The man looks like a pervert. Have you seen a picture of him? Yes. Well, well he doesn't even look so much like a pervert as he, as he just looks like a, a, a blob. He's, 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 he really is like a blob. He's I mean, like, he looks like Shrek with a beard. He, he is the example of, of how without money, he would literally no one would even look at him twice and power, obviously. Right. Very similar to Donald Trump. Um, but here's the thing about Harvey Weinstein. Okay. So he has, there has been audio of him acknowledging that he groped a woman's breast. Hmm. And there's all these other allegations. And this is, there's like quite a lot of evidence out there that all this has a high likelihood of being true. However, Jonathan, and this is where you come in, because mm. you are a conservative, apparently, or a classic liberalist, we mustn't use these women as like a battering ram against the left. I'm, I'm not trying to use the women. I'm trying to use Harvey Weinstein's shitty behavior. Yes, but we can do that on its own. We can say Harvey Weinstein's like a, a, an absolute motherfucking bastard mm. without saying the whole left agrees with Harvey Weinstein. Um you can or that sort of, all you, you, you can sort of, but I, 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 the problem is, is that the left has played this game where every year, year on year, and it's gotten worse. Um, for example, we have been lectured to at the Academy Awards, at the Emmys, at all of these award shows, um, at any opportunity, any celebrity from Hollywood gets or, you know, from the West End or from Broadway. Uh, any opportunity they get to lecture us about our morality, about the way the world works, about politics, about climate change, etc., etc. Um, they've used these events to do this um, while being absolute hypocrites on many of these things. Um, and so mm. when there is such a glaring example of their hypocrisy, uh, I believe they need to be hit with it and they need to be hit hard. I mean, yes, and and funny enough, you're getting this idea. I can know you actually believe in this idea, but Michael Malice, who's an anarchist, yeah, I was, agreed with that. He was on Ruben Report two weeks ago. Listen to it; it's really good. Um, he says, you know, we need the, we need our scalps. Mm. They're coming for our scalps. We need to sculpt them mm. first. But look, I, and I agree, but it's sort of like wrestling with a pig at the end of the day, right? You know, you're still going to get dirty. And do you do you want to? Find the, the truth, or do you want to well, I, just get dirty? Well, I, well as I, you know, those of those of you friends with both of us on Facebook, I, you know, in my opinion, I've uh, I found some truths, and I want the truth to win. Um, and I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, um, 
this is the game. This is how it's being played. And you can be more civilized and you can be the better person, but you're not winning. You're not winning any of the, the truths or any of the culture war um, by standing back and being the better person. The truth is that the right has done that for a very long time. Um, they've, they've literally sat at the Academy Awards. There are people there who are conservatives who sat there and shut their mouths. Uh, ben Shapiro wrote an entire book on how Hollywood openly admits to discriminating against anyone with conservative views. Um, how they won't get parts. Uh, J- James Woods. James Woods came out, came out as a conservative. When has he been in a movie since he came out? Um, uh, well, I don't know. Clint Eastwood is in, he directs a lot well, of movies. Cl- Cl- Clint Eastwood is his own But, but here's the thing company. though, the culture war. What happens if I want both sides to lose? Because they're both wrong. Well, it depends. That's, uh, that would depend in, on each thing and, and their principles. You want them to lose in entirety? I don't, wouldn't agree with you on that. Well, who do you, do you, who do you want to win? Ben Shapiro? On certain things? Exactly. There's no coherence on either side. I mean, the culture war is largely online. If you go to, you know, ordinary person in the street. Yeah, okay, but, but, but if you, if you want to, if you want to say, look, there are two sides and you can only pick one and you can't pick parts of one, which isn't, isn't actually the case. No, that's um, not what I'm arguing. Okay. But, but if, if, if that were the, if you, if you were arguing you've got to pick one side. Sure. Then I pick one side. The reality is, were the Allies really nice people in World War II? No. They also did shitty things. Um, but you had to pick a side if you got to pick one overall side. So yes, if I'm picking an overall side, I'm picking Ben Shapiro's overall side. But no, I don't agree with him on everything. Um, but, but the reality is, is that we've, we're so far past me being able to sit down. I'm going to sit down with Ben Shapiro, I'm sure, and have a discussion about the things I disagree with him on. I mean, he did that beautifully on Joe Rogan. Yes. Um, um, but in terms of where, Ben and I would fall on the right in in a, in a lot of ways on many topics, um, and where the left is, the the, the 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 fight has to be had, and it has to be had the way they are playing because the way they are playing is the way the game is set up currently. So yeah, don't hate the hate the players of the game. <laughs> That's what you're telling me to do. I don't know. Cause I've taken I've taken a a, a distinct. Um, Step away from Twitter in the past month, not the past month, the past week or so on purpose. I just mm. tweet things that are interesting rather than mm. antagonizing. And it's been quite a, quite a nice uh, feeling. Good. I must be honest. You're not getting involved in the outrage machine. No. Dav came out and I was like, no time for that okay. nonsense. Anyway. But anyway, on the show. So as always, apologies for the noise next door. Uh, but let's get on to the show. Yep. Ramon, do you want to introduce our guest for the week? Absolutely. So we are talking to one of those South Africans. You know those ones that leave? Oh, aren't we meant to hate them? You know, anyone tries to go elsewhere for opportunity must be despised. Absolutely. They're, they're mm. traitors to the National Democratic Revolution uh, and deserve to be burned at the stake. But absolutely. nevertheless, uh, so his name is Simon Lincoln Reader. Uh, he works in fintech, which is financial technology, apparently not actual technology of fins like in sharks <laughs> i learned something new oh my god and uh, we, we've the, now got dad jokes on the reading ramon is a father and we now have dad jokes and anyway and then for the past five years he's written a column for the business day uh, as well as for other titles he's worked with the think tank the legatum institute and he's currently studying financial technology through the massachusetts institute of technology also known as mit so he's a, he's a dumb individual well, not trying, too many brain cells. He's, he's trying not to be. That's why he's going to MIT. <laughs> Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, John Ramon. No, it's uh, our absolute pleasure. Um, you got in, in touch with us and and uh, in touch with Ramon and, and mentioned the, that you listen to the show, which is great. Uh, recently, you were on one of our former guest shows, James Dellingpole. He runs a, a great podcast too. Um, yeah. You want to give us a bit of background about yourself, because you know you're from South Africa, you grew up here. So, tell us, tell us your sort of life story. Well, I have been in London um, for about two years now, permanently, having been in Johannesburg for uh, 13 years before that. Uh, yeah. Originally from Cape Town. Well, in fact, I was born in, in Johannesburg, so. Uh, I, I worked at a game reserve for a few years and then moved to Johannesburg in 2000 and, 
and two, and ended up um, in a energy uh, investment concern, which we sold, um, and that sort of uh, precipitated my move to to London. Um, yeah, and that's about it. And you know, in terms of my my column for Business Day that uh, Ramon mentioned, it actually came out of a, a discussion that I had with my friend Bonong Mahale, who was then the chief executive of Shell. At the time, um, my energy firm was working on government, a government program, and the idea was that this, uh, because the uh, energy program that we were working on was seen as such a success of a dual private sector government partnership, that other major projects should be managed in the same uh, process and by the same people at Treasury. And uh, this was at a time where there were sort of varying estimates as to the quantities of natural gas in the Karoo Basin. Obviously, neither myself nor my company had any interest in nat- natural gas um, or, or, or and no relationship with Shell. But um, I wanted to be broadly uh, sort of complementary to the process that the government were running because in, if they were to manage everything like this, then, then we had a, a, a real future um, in extractive industries and energy development and so on. Um, but, you know, obviously uh, kind of then shifted into politics when I saw what was happening, firstly, um, in the, with the media via um, the Gupta assets of ANN7 and the New Age, and obviously Iqbal Survey's independent um, acquisition via yeah. the PIC and then the SABC. So you wrote a column for Biz News, uh, Alex Hogg's outfit, uh, and, and you wrote a, yeah. a piece stating that you were actually neighbors or, or very close to the Guptas in terms of geographical location, not in terms of relationship, of course. Um, I mean, you must have been privy to a hell of a lot of motorcades. <laughs> yes, I was, um, unfortunately so. And um, as I gather, there's been no change in the behavior uh, since those days. I mean, well, in fairness, just... there is a popular Shabin very nearby. So, uh, exactly. you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then it was just done with such reckless abandon. You know, I, I, I opened my front door once to find the former uh, head of SAFA, Kirsten Nimitandani, asking where the Gupta's residence was. I mean, why the hell is the head of Safa there? It was just literally impunity. Um, and, you know, he, but he was one of, of many. And I kind of tried to, you know, when I, when, when, when Alec Hogg is a friend of mine, when I wrote that for him, um, I, I wasn't too, uh, you know, as explicit about, um, their behavior as I would be now, uh, given that, um, all of these revelations have emerged and uh, this, the incriminating, incriminating revelations. And, but as I said, um, it was it was a joke. And, you know, it was funny enough, it was this curve that went into Saxon world around the zoo. You came down from Jacob Zuma's house mm. and then you went around the zoo and you turned right into Saxon world drive. Um, where the Guptas, where the Sahara uh, compound is. And that was where it got interesting. You know, people were walking their dogs on the pavement or they were sort of trying to have evening jogs. And the next thing, there would be this blitz of flashing blue lights, Mercedes. It was really quite amazing. Um, and obviously yeah. at the time, I mean, you couldn't have put the pieces together because, you know, in retrospect now, you must be thinking, well, geez, who did I see and what the hell were they doing there? Um, now, mm. now it's, we, we, we know that, you know, these, these people have taken over the country essentially, um, that they, they kind of run the show. Um, and that must have been taking place, you know, when you were seeing all of this happening, that, that, that was the process that led up to where we are now. Oh, absolutely. Look, I, I have absolutely no doubt, um, that there was, uh, you know, if you look at the years and, and, and the Gupta, Emails, what's been revealed in the encounters as Becky mentor and so on. It was all happening, um, around, around that time. All, you know, this is a de facto criminal empire. The most important parts were being, uh, forged during that, uh, period, um, from 2009, 2010, um, to, to, until 2013. I mean, 
uh, I had a friend of mine um, called uh, uh, Rajab, Kamir Rajab, um, who uh, was well aware of these guys um, before they became a household name in South Africa. He had um, uh, Indian connections that um, they had given him advance warning that these guys were doing very bad things in Dubai, okay, and were giving Indians a bad reputation, all right? And there was a – and he said to me, he saw them with his own eyes landing their helicopter just down the, uh, the, the road at Zoo Lake without a license or anything like that. I mean, that is yeah, one of the many – so much – Absolutely. There's so many controversies, little things like that. Um, you know, you've got to evaluate which is the, which is the most offensive or which is the bigger of the controversies. And, and it's, we've lost a whole lot of stuff about who these people are and, and what they've been doing. Um, because there's so much to choose from, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see where it leads. I think a golden gilded palace in Dubai for everyone. And yeah, we are left, uh, like sucking the hind teeth as the saying goes. Um, so Simon, now that you're based in London, I don't think the average person in, in, in England thinks much about South Africa, but there are a lot of South Africans there. Uh, so what, what is, what is the, uh, what is the conversation like around, uh, well, you don't have brides there, I suppose, around your fish and chips? Uh, you know, the condescension is fantastic. <laughs> My friend Rian Milan, you know, I, he's been on your show. Yes. Now, he once wrote an article for The Spectator in which he declared that in the absence of political rele- relevance, at least South Africa has the best murder trials. Now, that was a reference to Oscar Pistorius and Srian Dewani. Now, as, as far apart as you may consider British and South African politics, I think there is one very clear link in that the politics of personality and legacy and consequence are more prominent in both contexts than they have have ever been before. And I see the ANC today as the spitting image of Jacob Zuma's behavior in his court at the rape trial of 2006. And I see the conservatives as a reflection of David Cameron's life, the choices that he made, the people he was surrounded by. But today, as it was in 2014, when Rion wrote that article, the irrelevance of South Africa in years, and notwithstanding the financial media's Johnny-come-lately attention to the multinational corporate complicity in these rent-seeking arrangements uh, orchestrated by the Gupta family and their deployments within the ANC and state-owned enterprises. Mm. Um, the impression, I'll put it this way, we are seeing only a little bit more sophisticated than Kenya, a whole lot less exciting than Rwanda, nowhere near Ethiopia's potential, and a a model alarmingly close to that of Zimbabwe in the late 90s. That is the brutal uh, truth of it, unfortunately. So are you saying we are just another African country? That will piss off South Africans, because we apparently are much superior to the rest of this this continent. (sighs) You know, there was an expectation that the country had this extraordinary promise. I think that was largely unfair because it was built on Mandela's apparent willingness to step outside himself and make decisions that were based on global best practices and not the politics of the stomach. But the politics of the stomach made a triumphant return in 2009, as you both are acutely aware. Yeah, absolutely. And... uh I think we've we've sort of fallen far awry of that, um, but there's I, I don't know if how much you get of this. There's a move in South Africa to demonise um, Britain um, or anything that can be linked in, in that kind of way. So you know the white monopoly capital um, kind of narrative, um, which is very similar to Robert Mugabe's uh, British imperialist narrative. It, it it runs the same kind of gambit, um, and essentially, essentially, the idea is to to um, make anything that would be an opinion from, say, Britain or Europe or the U.S. or any sort of developed country looking at us, going, "Look, we'd like to invest in you guys, but you're very unstable." 
uh, it's kind of to give this impression of, well, we don't need them and we don't need to care about them because they're our cause of our problems in the first place. I don't know how much of that comes across. There has been this undeniable rift between the countries. It's only in recent years, don't forget, that the movement Roads Must Fall attracted international attention. And there's this belief that together with this call for decolonized education, whatever that means, is a culmination of decades of festering contempt against colonialism. But the interesting thing here is that the commentariat is divided in this extraordinarily and the, the, the bigger, painfully liberal half of the commentariat appears to agree with these embittered activists on the subject of colonialism. So you've got this German-like guilt complex absorbing consciousness. Then you've got these lunatic fringe student things called what's your privilege and Black Lives Matter playing supporting roles. And then you have the broader extensions of the liberal left project that has already contaminated education proceeding into media. And what you're left with is this perspective that seeks to determine the future's limitations on only the worst supposed parts of history. Okay. Hmm. And this selective approach to the truth completely destroys factual examples of how some uh, cultures have actually prospered. And let's not um, mislead anyone about this because they pronounce it themselves. There are some cultures that have actually prospered in the wake of colonialism, the Afrikaners, the Japanese, and for that matter, the British themselves. So uh, to answer your question, John, and this is probably a long way of doing it. Mm, I think that 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 is a, a reflection of, you know, this kind of self-loathing that exists in any um, liberal when you when you're trying to debate any liberal group or or consensus um, that they look upon South Africa with a with a degree of sort of guilt and, and self-loathing. Yeah, I'm interested just on on the uh, the roads must fall example, which I, I've almost forgotten about, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it just occurred to me that the whole idea of decolonizing education has spread from, and I'm just wondering which way it went, because to me, it seems like it was a South African concept, which then spread to England, which has now kind of found its way onto the American campuses. But of course, the American campuses had their own element of psychosis before we had ours, because we generally are about 18 months to two years behind them in their sort of Marxist rhetoric. That's traditionally how it goes. Um, but I, I, would you would you say that at least on the decolonizing educational curricula, uh, curricula or, or, or um, uh, you know, in the US now they want to, they don't say decolonize, but they say things like naturalize and, and, you know, um, you give voices to POCs in the curriculum and stuff like that, uh, which is, is the same concept essentially. You, you think that was a South African, uh, um, gift to the world? And by gift, I mean something highly poisonous. I don't know if it was a gift as much as it aggravated a uh, situation. And, you know, I, um, don't, I interface with students only at my uh, martial arts school in King's Cross down the road. Well, you I can beat them up. <laughs> yeah, they are. They do have their uses. Um, but, uh, you know, if we're on the subject of students and how they see things, um, you know, I, 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 as I said, I think that it aggravated, um, you know, and, and, and don't forget, you, you, there are other uh, things as well that have, have contributed to this um um, uh, Donald Trump and, and his rise over the, the course of the last two years was another, um, you know, and they subsequently developed their own language in which they speak about bodies. I know that that's the case in Britain too. They, they talk about uh, POC bodies, uh, for example, and it's very confusing. And they've also got this sort of gender fluidity where they call each other Zer and Z, uh, very, very confusing. But I wanted to tell you guys that, you know, about, on the, about these people, you know, this momentum movement, within the Labour Party, and it's largely responsible for its popularity at the moment, amongst, especially amongst young people. I went to a, a discussion uh, where a number of uh, these young Momentum interns were sitting 
amongst uh, sitting on the stage and, and talking about <laughs> Marxism ideas for the 21st century. Um, and I heard with my own ears that this one, uh, this one girl got up and she said that um, we are, you know, that, that there's this talk that socialism is a genocidal, bad examples of it. Um, many, many bad examples. She, she, she didn't mention that, but the, but she said, you know, we've had this bad rap, um, but we are determined, and I quote, we are determined to take the best aspects of globalization and apply them to things like equality and fairness. That's what she said. I quote her verbatim. Um, so uh, they've gone from <laughs> being righteous students um, over here, the worst of it, being gone from uh, righteous students to making comments like that. Well, okay. I mean, we can we can laugh at socialists all day, um, to be honest. Um, but in in Britain, funny enough, uh, there's the the leader of the Labour Party, which is you know one of the major parties there, is an avowed socialist, uh, someone who who loved uh, Hugo Chavez quite a lot, who was paid a few thousand pounds to appear on Iranian TV um, to any he's friends with Hezbollah. Um, it, it's quite strange that in, in, you know, 30 years after Thatcher, we have an avowed socialist as the leader of the official opposition in Britain, don't you think? Yes, I think it is strange. But, you know, I, look, I, I, Jeremy Corbyn is the member of parliament for my neighboring constituency. I have a beauty. I have an absolutely amazing a uh, person called, and I don't mean that in a good way, called Emily Thornbury. I'll get to her just now. But it is, um, uh, Roman, it is very strange that this guy who uh, speaks like he does and, and, and for that uh, looks like he does has absorbed such popularity. Um, but he's. this has been a project in the making for some time. And you have to go back to 2010. They tried with Ed Miliband as the leader of, uh, leader of Labour, but they realised that unless they went back to their ideological roots, that they wouldn't um, have the, you know, and they had to get rid of this new Labour uh, brush that Tony Blair had painted the party with. He took it from the places that Nigel Benn and so on on the far left he took it center they, they, this has been a, a, the opposite it's been uh, reverting to type um, and you know it's popular because it is accompanied by a narrative I've just spoken about with those students and how people are saying um, very strange things to try and give it context or relevance rather and to say that it does have a chance in this world because we have never applied globalization uh, to socialism. So um, people are looking for um, an alternative um, to what um, the immobility of the conservatives in their present state. And what they found was this um, bearded, uh, disheveled, unapologetic socialist. And he, he seems to have... He seems to have managed it, and from where I stand, to be totally honest with you, I think the Conservatives are ticks. So you, you think what? Sorry, the Conservatives are finished. Oh, you think they're done? Sorry, there's just a little bit of uh, um, noise we're getting on your line every now and again. I don't know if there's papers ah. or something on your desk or whatever. Um, you, ah. You're saying the Conservatives are, are are done? Unfortunately, and I say that because obviously uh, I would I identify that as. A, Political movements are more closely aligned to them than any other in the world. Um, and I don't think that you can blame Theresa May or Boris Johnson. In fact, I think you can blame George Osborne more than you can blame those two. But if you really want to find out why the Conservatives are probably done, um, I think you have to look at what David Cameron did uh, in 2010. Now, remember, they won a majority in 2015. So this has been uh, this recent election uh, surprise. It was still a victory, but it was a surprise in what Labour um, 
had caught up on them uh, was because Cameron, like Tony Blair before, shifted the Conservatives to the Metro left. Um, Tony Blair took the took Labour to the centre. Cameron took it to the Metro left, and this sort of indicates that you know these political parties only tolerate being not what they really are or meant to be for a certain period of time before um, they collapse and you have to sort of start them at grassroots like they've done with successfully with Labour. Um, Labour, the Conservatives are a bit like the Democratic Alliance, to be totally honest with you. There's, there's sort of ideological vacuum. There's that sort of nasty politics that you saw at the end of Gordon Brown's administration, mm. these mean-spirited personal attacks on each other. Well, I don't know. I think you're being quite fair to the Democratic Alliance, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, well, the big, the big, the big, the big problem with the Conservatives is that uh, there's there's no coherent ideology that 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 fuses them together until Jacob Rees-Mogg becomes leader, and he will lead them to victory over anyone. That man <laughs> will unite the whole of the Conservatives. What? I mean, what is your opinion on Jacob Rees-Mogg? For those who don't know, he's a he is a as elitist as possible and he wears it on his heart completely unapologetic as well unapologetic he goes on morning tv says he's a catholic he doesn't believe in abortion even for uh for rape he he believes doesn't believe in gay marriage um and and that you know the 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 tv host try to grill him and he says it's my personal beliefs the laws of the land are the laws of the land my personal beliefs are these um i'm not imposing them on anyone and it's not for me to to cast aspersions on anyone as a Catholic. That's what God tells me, and that's what the Bible says, so I won't. Um, so yeah, this man, a, a deeply traditional conservative elitist who speaks f- brilliantly poncy, um, g- gaining some momentum, actually, to replace Theresa May. So perhaps here's the thing about Jeremy Corbyn and Jacob Rees-Mogg. They both appear to be a lot more sincere in their beliefs yeah. than their opponents. Or, or their allies in the in the respective parties. I think that's absolutely correct, Roman. Look, I think the first thing that you've got to know about Jacob Rees-Mogg is that he is, even by British standards, remarkably wealthy. And I think that his combined, he's got his father's money, he's got his own money, and he's got his wife's money, and that totals something like 150 million pounds, which makes him probably the wealthiest member of parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wealth came about a financier called Somerset Capital Management based in Mayfair. He obviously doesn't um, fulfill an executive role. He's got an interest in it. But that particular fund has £6.7 billion under management. Now, the problem for him, and I really, really like him. He's impossible not to like. He's self-deprecating. He's absolutely charming. He is remarkably erudite. And he has a way with people which sees him befriend the most unlikely of opposition members. Well, but, I, I, I'm sorry, just sorry. to interrupt you, apologies. But, you know, I felt neither way about him until I recently saw him speaking to someone who was shouting at him, obscenities. And he very calmly uh, just diffused the situation completely and sort of said to the guy, well, you know, you, that's fine. You can think that about me, whatever the nasty thing that was being said. Um, but, but let's have a conversation and I want to discuss why you feel that way. And, and what is it that I've done that makes you think that? Okay. I don't agree. And, and he, 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 he just wants to have a dialogue. Um, and it's so refreshing, um, in, in a politician instead of someone trying to run away from that because he could easily do that as well. Yes. Look, his diplomatic skills are remarkable. There is nothing about him which is um, which 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 isn't really appealing. I think the way he dresses, the way he looks, the fact that he's got six children at a relatively young age. But in terms of where he will go, which is what Ramon alluded to earlier, you've got to remember something about this place. And that it's got short memories about everything else, but one thing it's got a very long memory about is a 2008, 2009 financial collapse. There will always be an association with people like 
Jacob Rees-Mogg that they got away with murder and their evidence is demonstrated in the relatively small amount of prosecutions for financiers that acted recklessly or illegally during that time. People will look at Jacob Rees-Mogg and see this tremendous fortune made largely by his um, fund, and they will see, well, actually, maybe there's no real difference between that extreme and Jeremy Corbyn's hero-worshipping of Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro's economic policies. You see what I'm, I mean? There's that sort of extreme of, of capitalism, um, uh, which, frankly, I identify more with. Um, but then, you know, with Venezuela on the, on the other side and John McDonald and, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, who is the more appealing of, of, of those two in, that you want in a leader? Do you want a guy who's made... Um, millions of pounds, or do you want a guy who uh, wants to take your millions of pounds away from you? That's ultimately what I see it coming down to. Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not too sure about that, if I'm really honest with you, Simon. I, I think people do want to see a leader who who appears to be honest when he speaks. And I think you get that both with Jacob Rees-Mogg and with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the difference is... I mean, the difference between David Cameron and Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Cameron tried to to lower his status. So he stopped using yeah. his car and he, you know, rode a bicycle around like some, like Barack Obama, you know, with a, with a bloody safety helmet, yeah. you know, like some, like some trumped up weekend soccer loving dad. It was, it was terrible. I mean, he has a, a, a person educated at one of the most, prestigious schools in the country and you went to the most prestigious university and he's, and he's, and he's driving around on a bloody toddler's bicycle. That's embarrassing. Jacob Rees-Mogg will never be on a bicycle. And I think people will acknowledge that he's rich, mm. but he's not ashamed of being rich. He's not trying to hide anything. He is who he is. And I think that will be the appeal for Jeremy Corbyn too. Jeremy Corbyn rides a bicycle because he loves the the bicycle and it doesn't contribute to global warming and all that crap, right? But I think you've got yes. two candidates who are sincere in their beliefs. And I think people are really attracted to that. I, I, yeah, I think that that's about right, Ramon. Um, you know, the, but the only reason sort of I bring up the, um, and, and it's because you've just done so with your, um, description of J- D- David Cameron, which is 100% correct. People saw th- through that. Okay, and what David Cameron's behaviour did when he pretended to be something he wasn't just made them detest uh, conservatism, the conservatives even more. Um, they knew that he would never be a uh, recipient of austerity um, policies. They knew that he came from a wealthy family; his father was a very successful stockbroker, um, and they saw that he was trying to play this fish and chips paperback novel game with them, Man of the People, um, when, uh, in fact, this wasn't the case. Now, uh, I think that it is that legacy that Jacob Rees-Mogg will have to Mm. become. Yeah, yeah. except, except, you know, a couple of things. Firstly is you've, you've got a man like Trump who I don't think is sincere in his – he's not a Republican, for example. You know, I, I don't think uh, he has foundations, deeply principled foundations. Um, but but the, the thing is, is, is Trump hasn't – as for all his lies, and he does tell many little lies along the way, um, he, he hasn't tried to hide who he is as a person. So he's been very proud. I mean, if, if you had said 10 years ago even that a guy will rise to the presidency who's been married three times, is it, um, who has kids with multiple women, who has no real religious affiliation um, and clearly couldn't care less, um, that would have been unbelievable. But the reality is that Trump presented himself exactly as who he was. Um, with, with, with all the negatives that, that necessarily came with that. And the other side of that coin, I think, is that, uh, you know, humans are innately aspirational. Um, we want to aspire to be better than we are currently. 
Um, and this whole idea that's been sold by PR companies, essentially, that, you know, politicians must be man of the people so that people can identify with them. Uh, I don't know when they're going to realize that the people don't necessarily want to identify with a guy on a bicycle eating fish and chips. They want to identify with a guy in a Bentley who's banging a hot wife because that's what you want to have. So, so I, I do think that there, and, and perhaps that's not everyone, but, but there, there certainly seems to be a clash in, in those two, two narratives. Yes. Thoughts on on the, on the subject of, on the subject of Trump, which is something that I imagine you two have addressed extensively with all of your, your guests. I met Conrad Black, who was the former proprietor of Hollinger uh, and subsequently found guilty of fraud, spent a bunch of time in jail. Um, But before he did so, he had professional dealings with Donald Trump and found Donald Trump to be a sound businessman, and they did something successful together, who found him to be a gracious host, and that someone who he saw adored, privately so, but adored his family. Um, And we don't see that in Donald Trump at all. And whether it is something that is a, a, a deliberate, uh, deliberately concealed, um, because the image of this boorish, sorry, uh, I mean, yes, you have something to say. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I do see it. So, you know, I, I, if you look for it, it is there. Um, I'll give you an, a recent example. Um, yes. They visited the shooting victims from uh, uh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas, um, yes. And if you look at the way the body language and the way both him and Melania um, behave um, towards the shooting victims, you can see the type of person he is, right? Now, I'm not saying yes. he's, a, he's perfect or he's great in any sense. All I'm saying is that, unfortunately, and this is what the left doesn't get, if they want to beat Donald Trump, they just need to be honest about Donald Trump. Be honest about where he is good and be honest about his failings and he will fall because he has far more failings than his good aspects as far as I'm concerned. The problem is, is that there's so much hysteria about him that normal people like myself who do look out for the stuff that isn't reported notice that he seems to be quite a normal guy who does seem to love his family quite deeply, um, who does seem to be quite a decent human being overall. Yes, there's some stories about stuff that he's, he's done, which, um, some of which is, is quite reprehensible. Um, but, but, but on, on balance and certainly in the last sort of five years when he's kind of entered politics, um, he seems, he seems to be, a, a, have been relatively decent in many ways. Um, and I just don't think he's being given that credit, but I think, people are seeing that and that's part of the mainstream media narrative that's being rejected um donald trump is evil donald trump is just like hitler uh donald trump wants to take all your rights away etc etc and people are rejecting that narrative because you can find all over the place um signs that he's not that man i mean another thing is the russia narrative where you know this he's this man who's a 70 year old american and, and you need to consider the context of that. This is someone who grew up through the 50s and 60s uh, through a deeply patriotic time in American history. Uh, you know, they had the Cold War. They landed. They had the Cuban Missile Crisis. They landed on the moon. Uh, America became the superpower of the world for many reasons, both within technology and knowledge, science um, and, and leadership. Um, and and now you're saying the 70-year-old guy is is, is – is being uh, traitorous to his country because he's 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 just Putin's puppet, um, and it just doesn't translate because everything he does is pretty patriotic, um, and he seems like a really patriotic guy. I mean, he every opportunity he gets to almost in a gratuitous fashion to compliment the military um, or compliment policemen, um, you know, he that's what he does, and and it just it just seems to me that. The average person, so-called normies, uh, will pick up on that, uh, and the mainstream media won't, the left won't, and the constant hysteria is the reason, you know, seven more years. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hear today, I read on the, this morning's, um, one of the broadsheets, 
but he'll only be coming to London in 2018, which is very sad because obviously that decision has been based upon the apparent hostility, not only from his critics in the United Kingdom, but also from the mayor of London himself. And it's a pretty sad day when the civilized world, as we know it, is at a point where you can't invite the leader of the free world, because he is still that, and the world's largest economy, because it is still that, on a state visit, because he's worried about uh, the behavior of, of people here who have been provoked uh, uh, by the likes of CNN and Mother Jones and Naomi Klein and George Clooney's wife and Linda Sarsour, all of these people who intentionally, for either financial reasons or status, um, uh, pursue this, this divisive um, narrative. Um, that is That is the reason why Donald Trump will not be visiting the United Kingdom. And I'm very, very sad, quite frankly, that that's not happening this year. Well, I mean, it, it is a bit troubling when someone like Sadiq Khan, who's your mayor, uh, you know, the one who says, you know, terrorism is part and parcel of living in a, in a big city in the world, you know. I'm, I'm sure the mayor of Tokyo thinks the same thing, as well as the mayor uh, of, was, of I Oslo. Was deeply reassured. Um, I was deeply reassured Sadiq said that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, here you have this man who is more worried about what Donald Trump will say when he visits London than, you know, people knifing each other to death every second day in the streets of London. Because that's the thing, right? You got how many knife crime? You got uh, 20, 30 casualties a month, as far as I'm aware, in London uh, between gangs. And every few months you have a... a Right, and every few months you have a terrorist attack. But, I mean, let's focus on what the what Trump says. It's quite a remarkable strategy. But what he says... Well, Sadiq Khan is focusing on Trump when when London is, is oh, burning no. every six months and people are knifing each other in the back. Every I mean, come three on. months, even. But, but Roman and John, you've got to realize that the left's approach, which is essentially the official approach to all of these atrocities, has been... Um, has, uh, you know, it's, it's been the left approach, which has been a dominant response. For example, and James has, in, James Glenpole has emphasized this, when those seven or so people were killed on London Bridge by those mental jihadis, uh, a couple of, mm, a few months back, yeah. the response from the Metropolitan Police Commissioner was to praise the diversity of the victims. So essentially she was saying, you know, Come to London because uh, you know it's 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 a it's a cosmopolitan place to be murdered in. Yeah, I, I saw. I did see that tweet. Uh, someone said no, one of the, the victims were Italian. Uh, I can't remember Chinese, Nigerian, Pakistani, and English. What I mean, despite the tragedy, it's quite a nice, diverse crowd. What? <laughs> what is that an yeah, argument? Was, I, I know you love diversity, was, but diversity in death is not a good thing. <laughs> She was describing that murder scene like you would talk about a wine bar in, in, in the city of London on a Friday evening. This is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, anyway. What, what do you make? Let's talk a little bit about this terrorism and, and, and the nature of the sort of vibe that, that is in London and, and, and in England. Um, this sort of sense that, uh, terrorist attacks now are, are good things because they bring us together as a people. Um, you know, because we can't have rock concerts for that. Uh, we, need, we need to have mass murder. Yeah, I mean, how do you get Oasis number one? You just have a, a bombing every few months. I, I remember a couple of months ago, there's a wonderful uh, writer for The Spectator called Rod Little. And he is uh, on form every single week. And he was giving a talk at the Smokers Society. Now, the Smokers Society is one of those wonderfully British sort of resistant movements that uh, produce documents on how much the public enjoys smoking cigarettes and all of this regulation coming to an end <laughs> because uh, people people must enjoy killing. Yep. At this evening that he uh, is so sick of London 
and um, subsequently has moved out. And what he's decided to do whenever he comes back into London is to bring a candle with him in case he has to pitch up at some vigil for yet another atrocity. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, that's, 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 but that is literally the state of it. And it's, 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 it's not even, I don't know, six, I, I, I can't keep track of it now, but it doesn't seem more than six months since a whole bunch of teenagers were blown up at a, at an Ariana Grande concert. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they deserve it because they were watching Ariana Grande, but yes. Uh, and then the response, no, and the response to that is, it's not, A, it's got nothing to do with Islam and B, uh, let, let them not divide us yeah, and see, unity. uh, unity is more important than fighting back, basically. This is the emasculation of, 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 of the British people. Yes, look, I think that that's Douglas Murray's fundamental argument is that because we are refusing to address what is really causing this, because we, it is the devil of whom we do not speak, we have this John Lennon imagine approach to responding. And it clearly isn't working. There's no deterrent to it. We are every single week. Well, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. At least once a month, there there, there is an incident where a train station is cleared. Mm. I was in one the other day, and it is not a pleasant experience. But, but unless you address the fundamental issue here, that there just might be something wrong with having hate preachers dotted around the country, that there just might be something wrong with verses in the Quran, then this is what you're going to have. And it's no good having um, uh, saying that we will not look back in anger or that we stand as one when, when um, you know, you're not addressing the, the real problem. Yeah, and that's what frustrates me the most, is that the laws are there already. Yet it appears to be that they're only prosecuting people who speak against the narrative. So the laws are there against hate speech, right? The laws are there against incitement. The laws are there against uh, all the, all sorts of you have a lot of a lot of speech codes in Britain for some reason. And if you go to to there was a a, a chap who who ran over people near near a mosque in in London who was arrested after the the the, the Tower Bridge attack. I can't remember. There's quite a few attacks lately. <clears throat> but if you see what, what is being said in that mosque, uh, it's like, you know, commit genocide against the Jews, you know, rape, rape the woman because they're wearing certain clothes. Just a correction because we're going to get corrected on this. The, he ran over the people down the road at a slightly different place to where that mosque you're talking about is. But yes, it okay. was nearby. My mistake. But we're going to get that correction. But, um, but I mean, there's hate speech being spouted every, every, you know, second day at these, at these mosques and not all mosques, et cetera, et cetera. Hashtag not all Muslims, which is not what we're saying, but this, the laws are already in place and yet they are not enforced in any way. No, they're not. And there is genuinely a belief that some hate speech is more policed than others. For example, around the gender, transgender. Uh, Didn't someone go to jail for that the other day? I, I think um, not on that, but, you know, there's there's a number of um, articles I've seen coming out of the UK uh, with regards to special policing units to hunt down Twitter trolls. And, um, I mean, Ramon would be in jail three times over in Britain. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, um, there's the guy who made his, uh, his, his girlfriend's dog do a Nazi salute, which is frankly the, one of the funniest videos I've ever watched on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, it's bloody hilarious. Um, and uh, he, uh, I'm not sure what's happened with that court case, Count Dankula, I no, think he, it is. He's still being prosecuted. They're still um, going to court sometimes. Um, you know, these are the people that are that are honestly in the system being prosecuted, and it just doesn't seem as if the other side is getting prosecuted. Um, the other point to make is that I, I heard the other day your government said they'd already foiled nine other terrorist attacks that sort of never took place because they, they stopped them. Is that, that, yes, does that sound about is. right? I, I, you know, I never know if I'm reading stuff on social media and I'm seeing kind of, you know, an abundance of my echo chamber. 
um, and it's not really yeah. how it is. But it seems to me like you've you've got literal policing units going out looking for people who say nasty things, um, and not very many. Uh, obviously, there's lots happening behind the scenes, but not openly uh, going out after people who say uh, genocidal or terrorist-related um, things. That genuinely is a perception, and you know, I will tell you how strange it is for, for, for in my understanding. Um, and there are police units, police cars in one constabulary, and I don't know where it is, but they have painted their police cars in the color of the gay flag. They have painted the badge of the met the, the county police force um, in the colors of the gay pride, the pride flag. Okay. Hmm. Now, um, if you are being attacked by a group of feral youths on a council estate, um, and, and you manage to sort of attract the police attention, and these guys come charging down the road in their pride-decorated Peugeot, okay, I'd be more worried about something happening to them. I'd literally be protecting these guys. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of thing that really doesn't inspire much confidence. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go to war, you don't want someone hanging around your leg. Yeah, and that's the problem that we keep coming back to. They're focusing on these very small instances when when the big macro picture is is completely ignored. Um for yeah. for the fear, I assume, for the fear of being called racist or being called Islamophobic or whatever the case might be. And yeah, I mean I think perhaps I should we feel safer here in South Africa, Jonathan. I don't know about you, but Well, until the National Democratic Revolution comes along. Um and talking of which, Simon just uh we've got a yes. we've got a few more minutes uh, to go um i uh, you know you you obviously write for business day um you you do keep plugged into what's happening in south africa what do you see as our sort of future here we we started off in the beginning talking about your experiences sort of with uh, in and around the guptas um and a lot of what the anc's become from mandela's anc to to what it is now with zuma um where do you where do you think we're headed? Well, I sort of listened to what Franz Cronier at the Institute of Race Relations has to say, and the models these guys generate. Um, I also have the you know I had when I was uh, when I had my energy firm in, in in Johannesburg. The only way that I could get any idea what was going on in government was to have a couple of guys who were previously uh, activists in the ANC who then went into business very successfully. So uh, um, feed me information um, as to what policy was, what leadership issues were, what their views on people like Claudie were and uh, Jimmy Manye and so on. And I tend to always believe in the positive, and I don't know whether it's because I studied the model of the Afrikaners post uh, colonialism um but i feel that there will be a response to this paralyzing state capture because it's you can't ignore something like this forever sean abrahams can't ignore something like this forever a leader who comes in and sees sean abrahams ignoring this will get rid of him um Hopefully, but I feel that there is going to be a procession of prosecutions. I think that people like Brian Malefe are genuinely going to go to jail. Um, and I hope that, uh, that, you know, if on the basis that they're found guilty, obviously, and, 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 uh, and other people too. Um, and from what I understand is that Zoom is quite happy for people to be jailed as long as it's not him. Okay. But this is the, thing about his skill as a as a politician he has not um uh, immune he, he he you know he will throw people under the bus um and if there have to be consequences for this era of lawlessness and impunity i think that we are going to see a whole bunch of prosecutions um and um you know that is something that that, that can possibly lift the uh, national spirits. It can certainly lift the investment spirit, 
Um, but whether the ANC, you know, continues these wild, unsuccessful policies that it has been pursuing uh, is, 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 is remains to be seen. I certainly hope, uh, and I think that, that France Cognier is dead right, that, uh, there, you know, that, that, that um, uh, there could be this, uh, this shift to the right, Ring. the swing to the right, and these, this enactment of policies which see us kind of in the mid-2020s achieve 4% growth, and by the end of the, the 20s as one of the world's most exciting emerging market investment destinations. I really hope that. But I, but I do think that there will be consequences for, for this era of L- looting, basically. And, and I said, it's just a sort of thinly disguised criminal um, organized crime. And there, there, there must be. Um, and, you know, the, there's the argument from people like Jimmy Money that you know, apartheid was much worse and so on. And I think he's going to start seeing his um, empire, you know, once these people start appearing in court, you look around and things are unraveling. And you start keeping a bit quiet, just like he did when he was fired from his job as the, dep- the director general in the Department of Labor for making inappropriate advances, uh, overtures rather, toward a Scandinavian ambassador. Um, you know, he went very quiet after that. And I think that we're going to see him being quiet again, uh, which I will do many people uh, happily. Simon, I'm afraid that uh, I think you are extremely romantic. <laughs> <laughs> the personally speaking, the ANC will never prosecute itself ever. No member of the ANC will go to court. No member of the ANC will go to jail because that sets a precedent for the future. And as Butterbean, what did, what's the name? Dlamini, what? Butterbean Dlamini. Butterbean, I call it Butterbean Dlamini. As uh, as she says, everyone's got these little skeletons in the closet, and if you set the example, you will be next. So I don't see anyone going anywhere, if I'm honest with you. I, I just see a general collapse of the state due to lack of, of investment and funding and all that sort of stuff. But uh, this this notion of justice, uh, that doesn't exist yet. I, I tend to disagree in, in, when the ANC realizes that if it is one of its only options to save face in the face of complete irrelevance or decline, would it not consider making examples to enhance its reputation and voters claw back what it's already lost. You know, uh, only if elections take place, Simon. Only if voters <laughs> amount to anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, look, okay. I, I think, I think uh, the end of the year is an important uh, turning point, and we'll have to see, you know, uh, uh, as it stands, it, it looks like Nkosazana uh, Dlamini Zuma, Mini Zuma, um, as, as Ramon yes. insists we refer to her. That's her name. Um, yes, it's Mini Zuma and Sanbat Musi, um, who will be facing off in 2019. Um, and, and if, if that is the case, if Mini Zuma takes, takes the reins at the ANC, which is essentially just Zuma, take, you know, keeping power, um, then I think Ramon is probably correct. Um, however, if there's somehow an upset, um, and look, the ANC do throw a lot of chairs at their conferences these days. So if there's somehow an upset um, and a few delegates get hit enough with enough chairs and maybe some sense gets knocked into them. No, listen, let, um, me, let me give both of you an education. Sorry. Uh, so there's, <laughs> there's only three possibilities. Mini Zuma, Ramaphosa or Zuelim Kize. Right? Agreed. And I don't think Zueli's got a chance. Zueli's a compromised candidate or or will agree to, to have him on to... He'll be deputy to Cyril. No, no, no. For unity, Cyril will be his deputy. So there's two factions. And what happens if Kalema Motlante gets voted from the floor? Oh, please. He's, he's old school. No one cares about him anymore. He's got no That's power whatsoever. Theory, no? He, he has no patronage network at all. He's not even a contender. No. Uh, no. Not in slightest. <laughs> Very inconvenient. He doesn't like that at all, Simon. Just, no. just don't bring up inconvenient no. things. So there's three things. There's only three candidates. Uh, as I said, Ramaphosa, Minizuma, and Mkize. The possibility for me is Mkize as a compromise candidate. So Minizuma and Ramaphosa will agree to say, let's, let Mkize bring the unity back to the ANC. We will not, you know, fight each other openly like this. <clears throat> 
And the ANC will try to be united into 2019. The problem is those factions between the, <clears throat> the Minizuma camp and the Rome of course, camp will still exist. And, uh, and there will just be a further decline in the ANC. If Minizuma wins, however, Jacob Zuma is probably ruthless enough to become the benevolent dictator that we not crave, but sort of might need because he's letting go of the lefties. That's the important thing. Zuma is just greedy. He's not an ideologue and I can deal with greedy. Okay. And if Cyril wins it? Fucked. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I see. I disagree, but, but I, I think we should let it play out. I think, uh, too, too soon to know. Although, as I say on paper, Lamini Zuma has it. Um, Simon, do you want to be found anywhere? Um, not particularly. Okay, that's fine. We conservative, we, we right thinkers are well aware that we're not fashionable, popular with thousands of social yeah. media followers. So if you I'm want to dock Simon, you will have to work quite hard. Um, you need to put in some effort. Um, you, this is not merely uh, just finding his IP address from a peppy meme. Well, that's our show for the week. And um, as always, you know where to find us. Uh, Twitter. Renegade underscore reports, Facebook, the group, Ramon, it's enough, eh? Patreon, Patreon, don't punt it. Patreon is the most important one. Listen, you, you British people listening to us, you have pounds. In South Africa, a pound is, is, is worth like a house. So. And a Bentley. And a Bentley. Together. Yes. So, so, um, and your favorite beer, which is probably Carlsberg, which is shit. Um, so, uh, yeah, please donate pounds to us. <laughs> and thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. Cheers. Bye. This is CliffCentral.com.